Welcome back to To The Point at the Woodrow Wilson Center. I'm Benjamin Gadan, typically your host, but not today. Instead, Lucio Castro, a Wilson Center Global Fellow in the Latin American program, is back with another episode of A Path Out of Crisis, conversations with leading Latin American economists. He speaks to Andres Velasco, Dean of the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics and a former finance minister in Chile. They discuss education, inequality, and populism in post-pandemic Latin America. Today, we have the pleasure of having with us Andrés Velasco. Andrés served as Minister of Finance of Chile with Michelle Bachelet between 2006 and 2010, and he's currently the Dean of the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics in the UK. Among many things that he has done in his career, he also ran for the presidency of his country in 2012, and he previously had a very long and distinguished uh, academic career. The idea of having Andres with us uh, as part of this series is to talk about the impact of the COVID-19 crisis in Latin America, and particularly to focus on possible ways out of this crisis for the region, and if time allows to talk about Chile, and particularly what recently happened in Chile with the constitutional reform. Uh, so Andres, First, first of all, welcome to our series. And I would like to ask you uh, uh, something about a recent article that you wrote with Mauricio Cárdenas and other colleagues, where you argued that COVID-19 is not just another crisis for Latin America. You pointed out there that output is expected to be lower, around 10% of this year, vis-a-vis -vis the, the expectation for this year. Unemployment might end up in double digits this year. And the region could end up also this year with 15 million more people under the poverty line. And more importantly, uh, growth is going to be subtrend, most likely economic growth for years to come. And the, the question I would like to ask you is something that struck me uh, as very insightful in your article, that the crisis beyond the, the short-term response that you judge is quite adequate in terms of the macroeconomic response, the monetary and fiscal policy, the crisis reveals something that you call structural weakness. So if you allow me, I'd like to ask you about something in particular, which you describe as the lack of state capability. Particularly, you mentioned the case of the, uh, the incapability of the region to reopen schools in the midst of the lockdowns, uh, and in general, the difficulties of the region to uh, reopen schools and, and manage the, the lockdown on the health crisis. But I would like to ask you more how to address this weakness. I mean, the region has been investing quite a lot in the last decade on, in, on education, health. We have seen some improvements, but for instance, in the case of education, even though supply has increased quite significantly, we don't see so much uh, improvement, for instance, in quality. So if you can comment on that, I think that would be extremely interesting. Thank you, Lucio. Thanks for the um, invitation to talk. You, you put your finger on, on a very key issue. Um, I think we have some good news and some bad news when it comes to the ability of Latin American governments to carry out policy. As you hinted uh, along the way, uh, not everything is bad news. I think um, 
we have seen governments being more activist and, and finding ways to create fiscal space. You know, there were some countries like Peru and Chile that had very low public debt to begin with, but even countries like Brazil where public debt was not so low, uh, the governments have had the courage, I think. Uh, I don't particularly like the government of Brazil, but I will recognize that on, on, on the issue of uh, extending emergency help to poor families, there was quite a proactive uh, attitude there, also in Colombia, much less so in Mexico. Now, um, I think there's also good news on, on the monetary and, um, and exchange rate fronts. We've seen central banks in the region being quite, uh, again, aggressive, um, bold in cutting interest rates and engaging in certain non-conventional policies. And the good news is that markets have not uh, gone into panic. On the contrary, markets have uh, shown a fair bit of confidence in what central banks can do. So far, so good. Where mm -hmm. is the problem? The problem is that uh, those difficult tasks, some of our governments, not all of our governments are managing, but some of the simpler tasks, the basic tasks of governing, uh, they, are, they are falling short. Uh, the mm -hmm. obvious one, of course, is uh, hospital capacity and the ability mm -hmm. to ride through a difficult um, situation brought on by the pandemic. Uh, not every single country has been overwhelmed, but we've seen big, big um, tensions uh, and uh, state health systems and also private health systems, by the way, which simply were not fast, were not flexible, uh, were not effective enough. And this is not over, by the way, because even as we look forward to the vaccine, uh, mm -hmm. as I heard someone say the other day, it's not the vaccine that saves lives, it's vaccination that saves lives. Mm -hmm. And when the vaccine has to be at however many you know, degrees below zero, the logistical capacity challenge for the state of buying the vaccine, of getting your hands on sufficient uh, doses of the vaccine, and then, you know, putting it on trucks or planes or whatever it might be and getting it to every corner of Argentina or Brazil or Peru, these are vast territories, uh, that logistical challenge is going to be great and I wouldn't be surprised if many states fail that test. You mentioned mm -hmm. schools, I think uh, it's, it's an embarrassment, it is a public embarrassment that uh, schools remain closed in, in, in most Latin American countries. Uh, sure. School children have lost a whole year. Um, in the case of Chile, they had lost much of the end of last year, uh, in addition, because of social unrest. So there are school children in some countries which for over a year have not been to a classroom. And of course, if you're, if you're a privileged child with a good Apple computer and fast uh, internet uh, access, maybe you've been, you've been learning and keeping up. Children with very limited internet access, uh, children who live in very cramped quarters, children with no computers at home have stopped learning altogether. And that's a tragic tragedy. Why is this happening? Well, there are two answers. Of course, one is lack of resources. Um, you know, not every country has done the necessary tax reforms or obtained the necessary economic growth to generate state resources. But money is not the only explanation. To some extent, the explanation is political. And then anybody mm -hmm. who's been near the state knows that these reforms typically flounder not because the budget is too small, but because the political obstacles are too large. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. If you think about uh, making hospitals more um, effective. Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in Chile in, in, in the Ministry of Finance, we worried endlessly, for instance, 
about the fact that we had spent a lot of money as, as a state in buying new equipment for hospitals. You know, we had built very nice new operating rooms with all the new technology. And we learned mm -hmm. that some of the new operating rooms were, you know, used for four hours a day instead of being used for 12 hours a day. Try changing that. Try mm -hmm. changing the way that, um, that shifts and hours and contracts are structured so that uh, you need to make sure that that you know operating room that costs several million dollars will be mm -hmm. used 12 hours a day 14 hours a day if necessary mm -hmm. politically mm -hmm. that's very 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 hard um because there isn't one lobbying group there are 10 lobbying groups whose interests will be touched upon vested interests that will be affected etc cetera, etc cetera. um schooling is the same thing um uh, I've been very struck comparing the relationships, say, between the state and the teachers' unions in Europe or in Latin America. Of course, everybody is worried about health. You know, I'm, I, I teach at a university, and we teachers at the university have had many discussions with the administration about how do we make sure that that teaching happens. You know, what kind mm -hmm. of protection do we need? Uh, what sort of social distance? But we've gone back to school. You know, we're teaching. Um, yes. In Latin America, governments have been completely unable to sit down with teachers' unions and agree on a mechanism which makes it safe. This is not a matter of money. It's basically a matter of politics. And there's massive political failure on all sides. Okay. That leads me to, to a second related question. I mean, also in your article, you bring upon uh, an issue that we discussed recently with Piero Gessi, former Minister of Production of Peru, which has been affecting the way uh, Latin America has responded to, to this COVID crisis, which is uh, informality. You talk about the dual labor market of, of Latin America. I would like to, you to, to comment on that, because I mean, many things have been tried in, in Latin America in terms of labor market reform, something to argue that the uh, reasons or the causes of informality are more related to the extremely low productivity of, of many firms, but the consequence of informality in the midst of this health crisis have been, and, and Piero was commenting that in the case of Peru, the difficulty for the state in the case of Peru to reaching uh, informal firms, particularly through the formal financial system. So if you can comment on that, but going beyond this COVID-19 crisis, how the, the region can address this malaise that is so typical for from Latin America in particular, and it seems to be to ingrain this dual labor market structure. Let's begin with one fact: labor markets in Latin America work very poorly. They work very poorly long before this crisis, and it's likely they're going to work even worse after this crisis. Mm -hmm. This is not simply a matter of efficiency; it is a matter of justice, because when a labor market works badly. It works well for some people and very badly for other people. Mm -hmm. And the people for whom it works badly tend to be the poor, tend to be women, and tend to be young. I'll give you one example. In Chile, if you look at the average, over 40% of women work and have a job. But if I go to the bottom decile of the population, I find that only 11% of women in working age work. 11% of women of working age at the bottom decile of the population are able to get a job. This is a tragedy. It is an absolute tragedy. 
And it has to do with the structure of the labor market, the fact that contracts are too rigid, the fact that it's very hard to work part-time, it is very hard to work uh, in a way that is friendly with child rearing or, or with studying if you're a student. Um, you know, the, for instance, the Labor Code of Chile allows for part-time work, but it was designed in a way so as to make it almost impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, in, in the United States, something like 25% of all labor contracts are part-time. In Chile, only 8% of all labor contracts are part-time. But it's not mm -hmm. only the labor market, it is uh, lack of childcare, poor public transport. You know, if you're going to be going to work uh, and it's going to take you two hours to get to the job and two hours to come back, you're probably going to choose not to work. It is discrimination because if you're a woman, a woman, or if you're poor, or if you're indigenous, it's likely that you will be mistreated in the labor market. So there's a whole package of things that keeps people from finding good jobs, stable jobs and good wages. This is bad for productivity. It is also bad for the families, but it is particularly bad at times of crisis because middle-class males who have formal jobs keep on having those jobs. People who have part-time jobs that are not formal, people who work you know, selling things on the street, women who work in domestic service. Well, when a crisis comes, whether the COVID crisis or a financial crisis, 30, 40, and 50% of those jobs disappear overnight. Mm. I saw a number the other day, I cannot vouch it is right because I didn't look at, look at the original source, but uh, someone wrote a piece in a Chilean newspaper saying that if I look at jobs for men and women under the age of 25, mm -hmm. something like 40% of those jobs disappeared in the pandemic. So the starting point of the way our labor market works is terrible. Now, the pandemic uh, added one additional complication, which is the one you mentioned and that my friend Piero apparently highlighted, namely that um, if you don't have a formal job, well, the government can't help you. Exactly. Um, and if you don't have a firm, formal help, the government can't help you. I'm in the United Kingdom now, in the UK until now, and probably until the end of December, the government is paying 75% of the wages of many workers in, in small and medium enterprises and even in some big enterprises. But of mm. course, the government, the government can only pay 75% 75, 75 of a wage if the wage is written down somewhere. If there's a contract that says, okay. you know, Mr. Smith makes, you know, um, 20,000 uh, pounds a year. If there's no mm -hmm. contract, there's no subsidy scheme that is positive. Um, same thing with firms. The government can say we will have emergency um, credit available for firms, but uh, if there's no legal firm, there's no legal entity, to whom do you give the emergency credit? To whom do you give the emergency loan, right? Exactly. So what I'm hoping, let me end this answer on a hopeful note. Again, the reasons why we haven't done this is politics. You know, you change one comma in the labor code in one direction and the business lobby gets very upset. You change one, a different comma in a different direction and then the union lobby gets very upset. It's politically very hard to legislate uh, labor reforms in Latin America. The ray of hope, the ray of light that I see is that this crisis has made it so evident, so obvious that we need to change that uh, maybe we will all be shaken out of our complacency shaken out of our inertia and there will be more room maybe not now but maybe next year to think about ways of making our labor market 
more fair, more just, and more egalitarian? I think that's a, an excellent point, and, and let me let me let me take from that ray of hope. I, I was thinking when I read your article, and now we are talking about this idea that you know uh, that you shouldn't let the good crisis go to waste. And I was thinking also in a more historical view that if you look at the last 20 years for Latin America, it hasn't been such a bad ride. I mean, the, the most of the countries, with the exception of a few like Argentina and Venezuela have been able to achieve some nominal stability. They have been able to create some stable and, uh, institutions, like, for instance, with monetary policy, even fiscal policy, fiscal rules, etc., and have been able to address long-term problems for Latin America that have the region suffered since the 1930s in, in, many, in, many, in many countries. So I was wondering, uh, you mentioned all these uh, political issues, and all of us, you and me and others, we have been in our governments, in our countries, we know those lobbies and we know how hard it is to, to go through these reforms. But do you think we have the, the, the right leadership, the, the right political momentum to push forward this reform? Do you see this happening in the region? Because uh, in other conversations we have in this series, particularly we we're talking about the case of Peru, uh, the populism seems to be knocking the door, particularly with constitutional reforms. People are talking about depleting private pension funds to finance current expenditure. So uh, it's like it's not so clear to me that there is only a only way out of this crisis, which leads to to these long medium reforms. But there is also a risk of going back to an old trap which might be related to populism region. So if you can comment on that, and particularly on, on pension funds depletion, that would be uh, just a note on that, but it would be good to, to address this more long-term structural uh, discussion. Lucio, you say that populism is knocking at the door. I would say that populism is in the kitchen and is eating whatever they're finding in the fridge already. Uh, um, and they're about to open up the wine cabinet and drink it too. Um, um, you know, we invented populism. Uh, well, Argentina maybe invented populism. The, the rest of us have been imitators. Um, uh, and I see Latin America going into another cycle of populism, no question about it. Let me begin by saying that I don't see populism exclusively in economic terms. Populism is not simply spending too much or taxing too little or, or, or borrowing in a way that is unsustainable. That, we, that movie we have seen and it ends in tears, right? Uh, we've seen it in Argentina, we've seen it in Brazil, we've seen it in Venezuela, we've seen it in Peru, we've seen it in many countries. I think there's another kind of populism which is just as dangerous and more insidious. It's what I would call political populism. It's a style of politics in which, first of all, you refuse to accept complexity, that issues are complex, so you oversimplify everything. Um, you know, you scream, no more pension funds. And he's actually, what's the alternative? Who knows? Of course, Trump knows how to do this very well. Migration is a very difficult problem. And Trump says, build a wall. Um, it's a stupid policy. It's not a policy, but, um, but um, it's very good. It's under a, a 140 characters, right? So the first feature of populism is oversimplification. The mm -hmm. second feature of populism is a denial of legitimacy, because mm -hmm. if the world is simple and every problem has a simple solution, well, it's mm -hmm. obvious what the right solution is. And if you propose something else, you must be an agent of a foreign power, or you must be corrupt, or you must be evil. So I'm going to deny 
your views and your political uh, opinions any legitimacy. Soon enough, you're dividing the polity, the country into the good and the bad, the decent and the indecent, the, the clean and the corrupt. And soon enough, you're trampling upon uh, political rights, civil rights, and the autonomy of institutions. And we've seen that in sort of small steps in Argentina, in Brazil, in Mexico. We've seen that in pretty advanced steps in, in, in a country like Nicaragua. And we've seen populism lead into outright dictatorship in the case of Venezuela. Mm. And Latin America is not alone in this regard. We've seen mm. populism of the right and of the left become mm. increasingly authoritarian in Hungary, in Poland, sure. in Turkey, in India, sure. in the Philippines, and in many other countries of the world. And there is sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry, well, of course. No, no, sorry, sorry, sorry to stop you there, because, I mean, this is really, you're going to the crux of the matter. I mean, there is a very interesting paper that was published in NBR by your countryman, uh, Sebastian Edwards. I mean, the idea that we are basically teaching the world how to go populism all the way. But I mean, and, and he was making some resemblances between the US and, and Latin America. But I was going to ask you something, maybe uh, if you take me the liberty of, of making an analogy, you know, because uh, you, you said that basically in Argentina, we created populism and that might be one interpretation, but another interpretation that I was always thinking about the case of Chile and Peru is Argentina was quite successful in terms of achieving uh, economic growth, increasing G per capita, but before populism arrived in Argentina, Argentina was an extremely unequal society. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there is this book that was published, edited by uh, Rafael Di Tella and other colleagues about Argentina exceptionalism, and they talk about that. I mean, that's something quite striking, you know, that even though the country was able to achieve this, uh, you know, almost economic miracle in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, it was without inequality. And some interpretation of that was the lack of understanding of the elites at that time of the need for these reforms to you know, open up the political system, to improve education, to do many things that you need to, to, to address the issue of inequality. Even though we are talking about completely different eras, uh, do you think there is something like that in this return of, of populism in Latin America? The region has been quite successful in terms of achieving economic growth, but inequality and, and the long, non-addressed issues of access to public goods are still there, you know? So do you think there is something like that in this return of populism, some, uh, you know, maybe a failure of elites of recognizing this issue that is resonating in the political system? I think those are two separate things. I am perfectly willing to say that we have bad elites, we have egoistic elites, and we have lazy elites. But that is not the same thing as drawing a mechanistic link between inequality and populism for a number of reasons. Let me say at the outset that, of course, Latin America is a very unequal and obscenely unequal region. There's no question about that. But as a social scientist and as a professor of public policy, I need to force myself to be rigorous uh, in a statistical and causal way. And what I mean by that is this, if something, social unrest, dissatisfaction, lack of approval of a government is going up, well, that mm -hmm. must be caused by some variable that is also going up. And the truth of the matter is that beginning at very, very high levels over the last 15 or 20 years, inequality has been coming 
down, not up. Okay. True. Uh, yeah. in, the, in the case of Chile, the um, Gini coefficient was 0.57 when we kicked out Pinochet in 1990, and it is 0.46 today. That's mostly, you know, the the reflection of labor incomes. There's some a, a methodological debate about mm -hmm. what happens if you include capital incomes because these are household surveys and the rich really have their income from capitals and surveys, whatever. Even if you, there's increasing evidence that even if you look at capital income, which is not captured in household surveys, inequality has been coming down. Yeah. I am not suggesting that we should be happy and celebrate and, 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 and say there's nothing more to be done. There's a lot more to be done. But as a social scientist, I have to point out that the assertion increasing inequality has caused increasing populism or increasing discontent or increasing unrest cannot be right because the kinds of inequality that we know how to measure have been coming down, not up. Now, there could be more subtle stories, more complex stories, more interesting stories. I'll give you one account. Um, access to education and access in particular to higher education have been rising massively. Um, you know, in Argentina or, or, or Uruguay, access to higher education has been high for, for a pretty long time. But in Peru or, or, or Brazil, and to a lesser extent, Chile, this is a more recent phenomenon. In mm -hmm. Chile, you know, a generation or two ago, maybe 15 or 20% of each generation went to university. Today, 50% goes to every university. That's an achievement. That's a massive achievement. However, there is also increasing evidence that when people leave university, um, whether they get good jobs or bad jobs, high paying jobs or poorly paying jobs does not necessarily depend on whether they were good students, got good grades, or achieved strongly. Um, the best predictor of, um, uh, say, a graduate of university in Chile, uh, of how much he makes or she makes after five years, is not grades, scores, recommendations, achievements. The best predictor is how much money his or her parents make. Yes. So, so we're not talking about increasing inequality. What we're seeing is the country has moved forward. A lot more people go to university. But when you go to university, you become aware that there are certain things to which you will never have access. Because the head of the company or the gerente of the company, general manager, uh, will never be somebody who doesn't belong to a certain club or didn't go to a certain school or, 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 or doesn't have a certain skin color or a certain religion. So this is not a mechanical story about inequality getting worse. It is not getting worse. It is about a, a set of societies which in many respects have moved forward a lot, where society is more prosperous, society is more educated, education is much more widely accessible to people. But that new reality, which is better, makes evident other realities which remain very bad. One of which is societies that are very prejudiced, that are very hierarchical, and a labor market, again, that works very, very poorly and where discrimination is endemic. So you could tell this as the glass is half empty, we remain very unfair, which we are, but you could also say, well, you know, the, half is, the glass is half, uh, half full. We have many more educated people and we have much more awareness of these, uh, of these failures of equity and the persistence of discrimination. Um, now, is all of this behind populism? I don't think so, um, for a couple of other reasons. First of all, because populism seems very endemic, particularly endemic 
in some of the countries uh, where um, where economic performance has been best, like Chile. Um, secondly, because some of the populism is right-wing populism and not, not left-wing populism. You know, mm -hmm. if, if somebody said, oh, you know, it's all about redistribution, well, I can see how people might be voting, voting for Lula, but in fact, in Brazil, they're voting for Bolsonaro, who's Lula's uh, uh, polar opposite, right? Um, uh, in the United States, people did not make uh, Bernie Sanders the president. People made sure. Donald Trump the president. Um, and last but not least, if you look worldwide beyond Latin America, some of the countries which have really gone populist are countries with very strong economic performance. Poland, Hungary, Turkey. Mm. In Turkey, since the financial crisis and until last year, the average rate of growth was 7%. Inequality has fallen in Turkey. Inclusion has risen and nonetheless, Turkey has gone populist. The Philippines used to be the, the sort of the, the, the sick man of Asia, right? The country that never grew over the last decade. Uh, economic growth is nearly 7%. Inequality, still very high, but has come down a bit. Nonetheless, the Philippines has gone populist and has gone right-wing populist. Turkey has gone right-wing populist. Mm -hmm. India mm -hmm. has gone right-wing populist. So the story that, uh, you know, it's all about inequality, rising inequality and a cultural redistribution simply flies in the fact, in the face of the facts. It is not a good account to expect to explain the rise of populism worldwide, particularly not the rise of right-wing populism as we're seeing today in Brazil. No, of course, Andre, Andres, and we are coming to the end. There is a more complex story there. I think what you are describing is obviously that income inequality cannot be the only explanation behind this rise of populism worldwide. There are more. It's a more complex phenomenon. Some people talk about maybe the, the relationship with globalization, like Danny Roderick. Some people associate that with the limits of hyper-globalization. For sure, it's a quite complex story. I, I don't believe I, that either. I've, I've I had this believe, debate with Danny many I, times. No, no, I, I don't believe either as well. I think it's a more complex story. But I think there is a, something, and maybe we can leave this for an, another interview, another conversation, because we are coming to the end of this one. But there is a, there is a, it's a very important debate because I think sometimes, as you mentioned, elites in our region don't recognize the need of change, and particularly of allowing people who have been excluded, not economically, but more politically, to be included in the political system. And that's more the story that I have in mind when I think the problems in the region. And that is quite, I mean, it's a good explanation what happened in my own country in the 1940s and the 1950s, you know, the lack of reforms, and, and most of the reforms that you were talking about, the, the labor market reforms, all the reforms in terms of political participation, in terms of ending with these inequalities, which are not related with income, but related with more, if you want, intangible ways of, of discrimination. Those are the things that lead you to this uh, agenda, populist right or right or, or left uh, populist agenda. And I think the region deserves to, to have a you know, uh, how to achieve this new reform agenda from a market, keeping the market structure working. So it's a very important discussion. Uh, I don't know you, but I really enjoy our conversation and a lot. We, I disagree on some things, and for sure you disagree with me, but uh, I really share your, your passion for, for the region's development and also being someone who came from, you know, research and then went to politics and to public as a public servant in our country, sharing some frustrations, some few success, but also 
Uh, I want to end this conversation with, a, as you said, a ray of hope that there is a better future for, for the region. So thank you really much, Andres. A real pleasure for having you here. And I hope to have the chance to talk to you any other time. Muchas thank you, Lucio. My pleasure. Very good conversation. And uh, I hope we meet again soon. This episode of To The Point was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at lap at wilsoncenter.org. Thanks for listening.